Welcome to Future Directions, a podcast about research. I'm excited about this episode because human brain evolution is something I think about a lot. Like how did our brains develop to be so specialized? And how are our brains continually changing over time? I spoke with anthropologist Dr. James Rilling, whose work aims to answer questions like these by comparing human brains to those of our ancestors. Also, I want to apologize because the audio in this episode is not that great. I'm still getting used to these fancy microphones, but I hope this doesn't distract you from the wonderful conversation we had. Please enjoy. Thank you so much for being here. I don't know if you remember, but you were the professor in my first major class, so it's kind of like full oh, circle right? for me. Okay. Yeah, Wh- maybe which class was that? Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's a big class. I'm yeah, sorry. it's huge. <laughs> So you got your PhD here in Emory in anthropology? Yes, yeah. Why did you choose anthropology? Was that popular at the time? Um, Yeah, actually, the reason I chose it was I took, uh, as an undergraduate, I was at the University of Wisconsin, and I was studying zoology and biology. And I just took a couple of courses on primatology and human evolution and just got very excited by those and um, decided, you know, if I could make a career out of thinking about these things and studying these things that I'd like to try that. So, yeah. Yeah, and they're super interesting. Yeah. And do you think it's a a major that is at risk for less people going into it in the future or? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question because I think ever since kind of the financial collapse in 2008, a lot of people are getting much more practical about making sure that they come out of college with a degree that makes them pretty marketable, which I I think that's perfectly understandable. I think, um, you know, anthropologists are still in demand outside of academics as well. And, And anthropology is such a broad discipline. There's, I mean, I'm more of a physical or biological anthropologist, but there's also cultural anthropology. And, um, I think one of the things that, anthropology really trains students to do well is to think in a very broad and holistic way. Um, And there's a trend for in many different disciplines for people to become more and more specialized and to to really focus on very specific specialized domains of knowledge. But in anthropology, we we try to teach our students to be able to integrate information and synthesize. And I think there's always going to be a niche for people who can do that. So, you know, we do see a lot of students going into things like consulting and Um, And I I think they become valuable just because of the way they can think. But physical anthropology is a little bit more specific. And, you know, we do have a lot of our majors going into uh, medicine and also people going into public health and um, health-related disciplines. And then, of course, you know, there's academics, which a lot of us go into as well. And now you're the department chair of anthropology? Right, for, for these three years, yeah. And you're a faculty at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, is that uh-huh. correct? So you're also an affiliate scientist at your keys, and you're a faculty at the Center for Translational Social Neuroscience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do you have time for all this? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, my primary responsibilities are to the anthropology department, where my that's my primary appointment. But it's great to have a secondary appointment in psychiatry because um, a lot of my research sort of overlaps with things that biological psychiatrists are doing. A lot of my work, especially in the past involved the use of uh, the primate center at Yerke, so it made sense to have an affiliation there. So um, it sounds like I'm busier than (laughs) (laughs) And now you have your own lab, the Lab for Darwinian Neuroscience. What made you go into research, or was it just the logical next step? Well, I think, I mean, you know, being able to, to pose questions and answer them and 
being able to learn things that no one has ever known before um, is just extremely exciting, you know. Um, and I think those of us who go into research, a lot of us go into research for that reason. And I think also, to me, the question of, of human origins, of where did we come from, how did we get to be such a special species, um, that's a question I've just always been really driven by and, you know, have had the opportunity to, to investigate that a little bit. So that, that's been exciting. I agree. I, I think it's so cool that we just come up with a question that we're interested in and just figure out a way to answer it. Yeah. I think it's, it's really cool. Yeah, it's almost like uh, playtime for adults. You know? <laughs> yeah, and we get paid for it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's right. And so can you just briefly explain the type of research you do in your lab? Yeah. Um, so we have a number of different research foci, but the one I think that you wanted to talk about mostly today was our research about human brain evolution. And so um, there are different ways that you can learn about human brain evolution. But in my lab, we've done so by uh, making comparisons between the human brain and the brains of other primate species. And so our kind of fundamental approach has been to look for um, characteristics of the human brain that are special or unique that we don't find in other primate species brains. And um, when we find those traits, if we find things that are unique to, to the human brain, we can make inferences that those things likely evolved in the, the um, lineage that gave rise to humans after we diverged from our closest living relative, who are the chimpanzees, about six million years ago. So, so my lab is primarily a neuroimaging lab, and we use different neuroimaging techniques to compare human and other primate brains. And then just very briefly, we're also doing a lot of research now on kind of the biology of social behavior with kind of an emphasis on, on fatherhood and paternal caregiving. So that's the other thing that I don't think you want to talk about. <laughs> I do. I'll talk about anything. <laughs> and so you mentioned the non-invasive brain imaging techniques. Yeah. For people who aren't familiar with that, can you just explain that briefly? Yeah. So those are techniques that allow us to look at the brains of living humans or living animals non-invasively, so without harming them in any way. And so there are both techniques that allow us to look at the anatomy of the brain and also techniques that allow us to look at the, the brain's function or the activity of the brain. Um, so one that many people are probably familiar with is MRI or magnetic resonance imaging, which is a, a technique that allows us to, to image the brain's um, structure or anatomy. There's also a technique called, it's a closely related technique, which is called um, diffusion-weighted imaging. And that's a technique that we can use to reconstruct the connections in the brain. So like the the wiring of the brain. Um, so we can look at that. And then there are also techniques, like I said, that look at brain function. Uh, so one of those is called PET imaging, which is positron emission tomography, which is a way of looking at changes in blood flow that are a consequence of changes in neural activity. All of those methods rely on people or animals lying inside of a scanner as we take pictures of their brain. And so do you think moving forward, are we trying to develop different ways to look at their brains, or are we just trying to update the techniques that we already have? I think that we're, yeah, more. it's more trying to update the techniques that we have in terms of neuroimaging, but um, I do think there's a lot of um, frontiers 
in the, the study of human brain evolution that go beyond neuroimaging. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to talk about those. You know, yeah, like. um, sure. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, um, so I think, you know, one thing is uh, there's a lot of interest right now in genetics and then trying to identify the genes that have been important in uh, human brain evolution. And so, you know, what genes were under positive selection during human evolution that were responsible for our brains becoming different from the brains of other species. So um, genetics is a really big field right now. Another really interesting area is what I would call um, connectomics, which is creating these sort of comprehensive maps of neural connections in the brain. So you can take these uh, data from, from diffusion-weighted imaging and you generate all these connections, and then you can kind of describe those connections as a network. Um, so where are the hubs and where are the modules and how efficient is this network? And you can compare those connectomes or those networks across different species. And I think that we're going to see a lot more of that um, in the future. Yeah. And so, for example, what are the special features of the human connectome compared to the connectomes of other primates? Um, so I think that's a big area. And then another area that I see um, up and coming is, there, you know, there's a lot of interest in brain development. You know, what is it? How does the human brain develop differently from the brains of other primates so that by the time we get to the adult organism, the human brain looks quite different. And so what are the key, you know, molecules and genes that are um, turned on during human development and how does that differ across species? And so this is really cool technique that, um, you know, I've been reading about lately, which is called um, brain organoids. And it almost sounds like science fiction, but you can <laughs> Basically, you can take cells like skin cells from, say, humans and chimpanzees, and you can, you can make those cells um, differentiate into these pluripotent um, stem cells. And then you can program the stem cells to develop into neurons. Wow. And you can take those neurons and kind of grow clusters of those neurons in a Petri dish. Um, and it's as if you're looking at the development of an embryonic brain in a way. That's why they call them brain organoids. That's crazy. Yeah, but it's very exciting because you can do that. So people have now done that in humans and in chimps and start to look at um, what are the differences in terms of which genes are being turned on and turned off and what molecules you know, seem to be expressed more in humans or chimps and at what phases in development and what can that tell us about why human brain development is different from from chimps and have they tried maybe injecting these stem cells in areas of the brain that need repair like stroke patients or something yeah i mean i think that's that's something that um so the clinical applications are really interesting as well so i mean you can imagine so they're doing the same thing with for example people who have you know neurological or a psychiatric um, disorders. So for example, autism, you know, looking at, well, how does the autistic brain develop and um, how is that different from people without autism? And can we get any clues to what goes wrong in autism by, by making that comparison? So That's yeah, it's a really cool. exciting, yeah, really exciting um, new method. You mentioned genetics and I just briefly want to talk about epigenetics and their role in evolution. Mm -hmm. So from generation to generation, we see differences in our cultures and our, the way we socialize. So I'm wondering if these 
may cause some epigenetic changes in our code and how those yeah. are evolving through time and yeah. in future generations. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so, well, what, I mean, one of the special things about humans is that a big part of the environment that our genes are adapted to is our cultural environment. And so that's really intriguing, right? That, mm -hmm. you know, in human society, culture can actually serve as a, a form of selection on genes, right? So if you are developing in a culture where it's important for you to learn, you know, social norms um, and, and to learn from others, then that might select for genes that develop brains that are good at social learning or something like that. So, um, yeah, I think you put your finger on something that a lot of anthropologists are really interested in right now, which is that kind of gene culture coevolution and how do those things kind of work together. And so, yeah, I definitely agree that's something we'll see more of. Yeah. And so I know you study human social cognition and behaviors <laughs> that have been under strong evolutionary selection pressures. Mm -hmm. And so I was just wondering what you meant by strong evolutionary selection pressures, and can you give like some examples? Yeah, so um, by that we mean uh, aspects of behavior that we think have been modified by natural selection because they have an impact on either survival or reproduction. So, for example, um, we're doing a lot of work right now on parental behavior, and that obviously has a huge impact on reproductive success, you know, the likelihood that your offspring are going to survive and, and so forth. And we've done a lot in the past on, on the biology of cooperation and kind of trying to understand the systems in the brain that are involved in cooperative behavior. And so we know, you know, when we look at modern day kind of hunter-gatherer societies that um, their ability to cooperate with one another is really critical to their ability to survive. And so we kind of think that throughout much of human evolution that people's survival was dependent on their ability to cooperate and work with one another. And that if they weren't good at that, they would have been selected against, mm -hmm. right? It, so that's kind of what we mean. So, so we've tried to focus on aspects of behavior that we think our brains have been sort of shaped to uh, make us skilled at those types of behaviors. Um, we also do a lot, of, we've done a lot with language. So kind of, you know, a lot of human-specific uh, behaviors that we think have been important for survival and reproductive success kind of thing. Is one lifetime enough to see these evolutionary changes and the type of behavior like cooperation and things like that? Um, yeah, definitely not. So, the, I mean, you're right, these things take place over thousands of generations. So one way that we, you know, sort of provide some insight into evolution is through these comparative studies, like I was telling you, so comparing humans to other primates and, and then making some inferences about evolution. But um, yeah, when we're studying a single species, and I, I say we're interested in behaviors that have been under strong selection pressure, I'm, it's more kind of an inference of what we think sort of theoretically this is likely to have been the case. Yeah, but um, it, yeah, it's... That's one of the challenging things about studying evolution is that we typically can't see it happening uh, within our own lifetime. So we, you know, have to rely on other sources of evidence. Yeah, I guess that this is one of the fields where it's most important to, from generation to generation, I guess, pass on our understanding of it so that we can build the bigger picture. Yeah, yeah. And I should just add that, I mean, this is probably obvious to people, but the most direct source of evidence that we have with respect to 
evolution is the fossil record, right? And so, for example, we've learned a lot about human brain evolution by looking at the fossil record, which can tell us how did brain size change. Brains don't fossilize, but uh, skulls sometimes do if we're very lucky. And from those skulls, we can make inferences about the cranial capacity and the brain size. And so we can, from the fossil record, track changes in things like brain size, the shape of the brain, the size of the brain, um, things like that. So sometimes we do have more direct evidence. And then I think, you know, right now, I mean, getting back to genetics is we're starting to have the capacity to see evolutionary change in the genome, right? So that's pretty exciting, I think. Yeah. yeah. And just touching on also the your oxytocin and vasopressin studies. Mm-hmm. So I've just seen research on these intranasal administration of neuropeptides and I've seen some that work I've seen some that don't and I'm a bit confused and I don't know what to believe so is this something that we still need to do more research on is like relatively new and would it be used more socially if if we find that it does work yeah well yeah there's been a lot of controversy about it because it it sort of um when it first came out the research with intranasal oxytocin was sort of all the rage and um and there were concerns that there may be, based on the sort of effect sizes uh, that people had observed, that a lot of the studies that were reporting effects were actually underpowered, which meant that there it looked like there were likely to be a lot of false positives in the literature. And so that that's kind of the concern. And the remedy for that is, you know, number one, making sure that we replicate studies, see if we get the same results, but also having more statistical power, which we get by having larger sample sizes. Um, And then I think the other thing is trying to link the work that we're doing in humans with the very rigorous work that's been done in animals, you know, so we know like very clearly the role of oxytocin in, for example, parental behavior in non-human animals from, from research that's been done there. And so that seems to be a reasonable place to hypothesize we might find effects in humans as well. So it's one of the reasons we're kind of focusing on on parental behavior. But I think, um, yeah, it's good to interpret that literature with a little bit of skepticism. And we want to see which of those findings stand the test of time. And to answer your other question, there's a realistic possibility that, and I think a fair amount of evidence already that oxytocin promotes positive parental motivation and that oxytocin or a drug that targets the oxytocin system, something like that, um, may be effective for different social behavioral disorders, Mm -hmm. um, things like autism or postpartum depression where uh, mothers kind of suffer with from not having sufficient parental motivation. So maybe we could, you know, try to partially correct that problem with, with treatment or uh, mothers or, or fathers who struggle with with substance dependence also have often have deficits in parental motivation. So I, I do think there's a real opportunity for oxytocin to be used, um, you know, kind of clinically. I think if if it works, it would be great. Yeah. So just to kind of wrap up mm-hmm. on going back to human brain evolution. Yeah. Why why should we care? Why should we try to motivate people to continue researching this? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I think humans have always been interested in sort of understanding where we came from and how we got to be here and why we're the special creatures that we are. And I think um, 
to me, that's just something that should be something that we as a species pursue is a better understanding of ourselves and where we came from. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and so what would be your advice for younger scientists? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, just generally or... Yeah, just for students trying to get into research or don't quite know if it's right for them. Well, I think it's, yeah, I think that it's good to think carefully about it. And I think that it's a big commitment um, to decide on a career in research. And I think it's important to feel like you really know what's right before you get into it. And so obviously there's a period where you have to, you know, sort of experiment and and try it out first and, and spend some time in different labs and so forth. But um, when you dedicate yourself to a career in research, it's, um, it's something that, I mean, this is a cliche, but you really want to be passionate about it because there can be some times when you struggle, some bumps along the road. I can't tell you the number of papers I've had rejected, the number of grants I've had rejected, you know, and that comes with the territory. Everybody experiences that. And depending on, you know, where you're employed, there can be a lot of pressure to get grants and funding. And so all of that is a lot easier if you feel like you're really doing something you love, you know. So I guess that that would probably be my um, biggest source of advice. Yeah. <laughs> and, and But also just to reiterate that if you end up going that route, that there are some really unique rewards that you get from a career like that. You know, it's not like going into work and punching a time clock every day. You're not bored. You're excited when you go to work. What am I going to learn today? What am I, you know, what am I going to find out that no one ever knew before? For sure. It's a big deal. You know, the the privilege to actually generate new knowledge is is a real, um, really great privilege. Yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it. Well, thank you so much. Okay, you're welcome. It was nice talking to you. You too. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please feel free to share this podcast with anyone you think would be interested. Well, share it even if you don't think they'd be interested, because you never know. Follow Future Directions on Instagram and Twitter, and let me know what you think. Let's create a community of forward thinkers. See you next time!